0: ontological oxymorons. I'm your host, Joel Bouchard, a graduate student in education. With these, Mr. Norman Gayford, a professor of English and philosophy. Translation is often an act that goes unnoticed by anyone who isn't a translator, but the act of translating can have serious consequences. Many consider the bombing of Hiroshima to be due to a mistranslation. When the U.S. demanded Japanese surrender, the Japanese Prime Minister responded with a word that can be interpreted as no comment. Instead, it was interpreted by the U.S. as we ignore you with contempt. History is riddled with such stories, and while it is easy to see their impact on the large scale, what's happening at smaller scales may be even more interesting and fascinating to the philosopher. All right, so um, we're talking about translation today, and... um, to preface it, um, we should say that there is um, kind of an academic um, description of translation that's pretty um, pretty narrow. Um, a translation is um, interpreting a text from a different language, whereas um, you know something like interpretation would be you know interpreting um, a verbal um, back and forth. We're not going to go strictly by that, um, definition, obviously that's going to be a lot of what, a lot of what we're talking about is, um, translating, um, language from one dialect to another. Um, but as we usually do, we're going to get a little bit, a little bit weird and and strange with it as we go along. So, um, do you want to give us kind of a brief overview of what a translation is? Well, you you started
1: out with what I would what is the the business model translation. By that I mean, like when I when I was teaching and doing technical writing, uh, this is really where the river meets the road, so to speak. Where where you if you have a manual that has to be used by uh, people across a number of languages or cultures, uh, then you have to make it as clear as possible and as accurate to the task. Uh, You want somebody to push the right button or do the right process uh, in the right order, and you want to make that explicitly clear so there there are are as few mistakes as possible. So there's an accuracy thing that is often assumed in a translational uh, transaction for something like a manual or a business correspondence, those kind of things.
0: Yeah. And so already this always happens when we start out and I ask you to give me a definition of something, you use so many key words that immediately (laughs) evoke all of the things that we're going to explore during the podcast. And so I think, you know, if, if you're a listener and you listen to that description, you think, okay, well, that seems pretty straightforward and simple there's a lot of things in there that we're going to pick apart as we go along that's going to make people question, um, what it really means to translate something from one media to another. Um, so yeah, I think that you, that was a very good, um, you know, description of how we use, um, translation, especially in a, in a formal, um, in a formal sense. So when we're talking about translation, um, obviously there's the the linguistic part of it. Um, and uh, the key word that you said um, that I'll, I'll start with was, was clear. The translation has to be clear. Yeah. Um, now, that brings us to sort of our first crossroads, which is, um, what does clear mean when you're making a translation? Okay, for it
1: see I'm glad we're going to go all across the map with this because I you know we can get up into poetry and literature and then we're really somewhere. but I but the utility of of this kind of translation for technical writing as an example, clarity uh, means, or is intended to mean um, not just accessibility, but precision. Generally, for precision of action, uh, undertaken or for precision of, of definition. So the, the utter denotative, you know, uh, and so you don't want words in a, in a manual or an instruction sheet or, or something that can be taken ambiguously. Um, there, and, and so translation, even in a technical sense, suddenly becomes much more, as you said, than what you would assume. And when I've done workshops with uh, companies for technical writing for their employees, we, we get into this almost immediately. You think, well, how do I make this manual better? What do I do? Do I make this picture green? Do I do it? Well, you no, know, there's so much more to it. Uh, where are you using um, culturally-based or regionally-based idiosyncratic uh, terms? Uh let's Let's take something from way back in my past uh, as a kid in, in the post hippie days, right? <laughs> the words right on well, right on is not clear. <laughs> it is if perhaps you watch somebody's face, but think about somebody from another language. Uh, you're using a, sec, a, a, a language, thats first their first language, our second language and and you've used this colloquialism that you just assume they get it. Uh, here's another, uh, goofy example, but, uh, you know, I've had a bear of a day. Well, all right. Maybe we assume we know what we mean by that, but it's a metaphor that does not translate across cultures. Um, uh, and so I'm going on too long about this, but that's, that's just one example.
0: Yeah, no, I, I ran across a good one. I was trying to find a good, um, example for the, the intro for the show. Another one I had was um, there was a big bank that wanted to advertise overseas, um, and the slogan they had been using in the U.S. that had done very well for them was uh, "Assume nothing." And so, you know, in 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 context of investment, you know, that that comes across as being you know pretty concise and, and pretty accurate to Americans. You know, okay, I, you don't want to assume anything when you're making an investment. The mm-hmm. problem is you translate that into a bunch of different languages. And in most of those languages, it comes back as do nothing. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're a bank and you're, you're advertising to people do nothing, do nothing. Well, that doesn't encourage them to invest very much. <laughs> exactly. Um, so they, they end up, ended up having to spend over $10 million to retool um, their marketing campaign after they, after they rolled this thing out. So that's a more humorous okay. example versus our, our Hiroshima example at the beginning, but the fact remains the same, right? Um, yeah,
1: there's a yep. lot of
0: in languages um, when you're translating, there's a lot of things that um, don't come across. So um, we're kind of talking there about like uh, metaphrase and paraphrase, right? Um, mm-hmm. Can you kind of explain those to our our listeners? Well, to
1: paraphrase something is to Put uh, an idea into your own words. This is what happens with uh, young students sometimes when they're unclear, uh, they haven't had the experience. So you ask them to paraphrase. A sentence that they've just read, which means you write something at the same length, but you put it in your your, your own words. And usually, uh, someone with no experience will just say, "Oh well, I'll just like turn the words around and I'll shift the words around a little bit in the sentence, and it might make syntactical sense." But it really hasn't your own words; it's just shifting around somebody else's words. Uh, so paraphrasing is trying to make something more accessible in a language that you're familiar with for an audience that might be using the language. Or the, the degree of formality or informality that you're using. Um, metaphrase is really, <laughs> in some ways, it's it's. Uh, I, I I think of it as as uh, another word for for summary, but it's really more than that. Meta anything means uh, the bigger picture, looking upon something. A metaphrase. Uh, when I say I think of it as summary is because you're talking about doing uh, a word for word for word translation of something um, uh, so that you're not loosely getting the idea. You're you're trying to nail that idea uh, with absolute
0: precision again. And so it's not really all that hard to see how translators can get into big trouble with these things, right? right? Because... It's almost like they're they're opposed to one another. If you're trying to paraphrase, you're trying to um, grab the you're trying to grab the idea and then put it across in the new language as best you can. If you're trying to metaphrase, you're trying not to introduce any of your own idea into the new language by precisely translating, the language, but the right. la- the two languages might not have words that convey the same meaning, so you might actually be losing something by directly quoting, right? Yeah,
1: you know, there, there are blo- well, there are, blo- there are places of that that offer many fine examples of this that most of us, if we weren't involved with language, wouldn't necessarily think about it. You mentioned before, $10 million uh, the process that costs somebody a uh, translation is a serious business in business, but it is also intellectually uh, serious uh, in literature. You know, so no matter what a part of the brain or, or what spectrum you're talking about, uh, there is a lot at stake from uh, ideas that are miscommunicated, processes that, that get messed up and cost a lot of money to re- retro-address, um, or make, trying to somehow keep the spirit of an idea that somebody has written and putting it in a new language. But, but just you know, from English to French, there, there are words we would just assume, uh, uh, like shallow, The French language is a beautiful language, but it does not have really a word for shallow that means the same thing that we do. Logic and romance are not terms the Chinese languages, and many languages, not just Mandarin, would uh, have ready access. There are phonetic translations, but they're not uh, the deeper. Uh, uh, meaning. So, from a philosophical viewpoint, given given our podcast theme, uh, we have uh, the linguistic, as you mentioned, uh, concerns. We have. <clears throat> ontological concerns. Uh, we have, like, what is a thing? We have uh, phenomenologic, phenomenological concerns. How, what is my relationship to this thing that I'm translating? We have ethical concerns, which is to say uh, you, you are bound by ethics, not to misrepresent. I know the culture we live in, we've probably <laughs> given up on that. But really, ethically, as a writer or a translator, you're bound not to consciously misrepresent uh, something, either visually or in text. And, uh, and so all of these things are swirling around when you sit down and say, how do I take this uh, direction, that I want to write a three-step direction, and make sure that it can be done by people around the planet.
0: <laughs> yeah, and, and so, um, like what you were just saying there, that already gets me thinking, right? Because you said the French don't have a word for shallow. Um, but the fact is, in, in English, shallow can mean numerous different things, right? So my next question would be, well, do the French have not have the word for shallow in terms of um, something close to the surface, or do they not have a word for something... Um, meaning like a, a a lack of character you know
1: it's well it's uh, it's two or three words in a in a phrase for at least one of those about the other I'm not sure i'm sure they i'm sh- i'm sure that they do because literature and French are just amazing and so and it's, it's there but it's not one word and that's really mm-hmm. what i'm you know right. we, we, we so much in in english use you hear people say it so frequently why can't people just say it more simply why can't people just take all those words and put it in one word well we've got this notion that everything can be compressed and and if and if we would think about in, in translation terms if we would think about something more ordinary in our lives what happens if we over compress something in a physical process.
0: <laughs> right. You, know, you, you, you can get into real difficulty. Yeah. Everything can't be compressed. Right, exactly. And, um, you know, it's it's the same thing. We run into the same thing with um, different types of media as well. Um, it's a big problem with um, modern music. Um, you know, when you're listening to live music, right, your ear um, doesn't really have a a a compression mechanism it does at very high volumes but for the most part um your ear is going to listen to things and it's going to be able to detect loudness and softness pretty fun you know pretty good when you listen to um a song that's been recorded though the limitations of the media only gives you a certain um, amount of space to fill and so what modern um sound en- engineers found is that the louder a song is the more pleasant people find it hmm. which led to what's called the the loudness wars where um sound engineers starting in the late 80s early 90s um started making their songs gradually louder hmm. um and so these songs got louder and louder and louder until eventually they're they, you know, in the early 2000s when it was at its peak. Now they're starting to put some things in place to, um, reduce it, but it's still, um, a, a big problem where, um, sound engineers are essentially trying to inch every, um, squeeze every inch of volume out of, out of uh, music. And so what this entails is large use of compression. Um, and they do all kinds of psychoacoustic, um, tricks where, um, And I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that I don't do this. I do this as well because I want my, (laughs) I want my songs to to sound, you know, I don't want you to listen to my songs on internet radio and and say, Oh, well this sounds so quiet or dull or whatever. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll cut, I'll cut some bass frequencies out of the sound because the human ear is biased towards high mid frequencies. So the more high mid frequencies you have, the louder something seems to sound, even if it's not. Um, If you compress things by um, bringing up the low signals versus crushing the loud signals, um, it's perceived as being more transparent. Mm. Um, So, there's all of these different things you can do um, to get your music to sound louder. Um, So, what? So, sound engineers, you know, they filled up the the media, It, it can't get any louder. And then they started developing new tricks that didn't make their music louder, but made it seem louder. Um, and when you're doing that, you're achieving that goal. Things are seeming louder. They're getting louder. Um, but there's a trade-off. You're losing something, right? Like I said, I'm, I'm cutting out bass frequencies that are normally there. Mm-hmm. Or mm-hmm. I'm taking um, peak levels. I'm taking a snare drum or a bass drum and crushing down that frequency a little bit so it fits within the media um, doing all these things and so if, you know you don't have to you don't have to do a big scientific survey um, you can anecdotally go around and ask anybody um, do you prefer the sound of a live music versus a recording and a lot of times it's pretty unanimous somebody would rather hear the band play something next to them than they would over a, over a recording. Because in that translation, um, you're, you're losing something. And in, in music, um, compression is the thing that really is robbing, um, some of the life out of that sound in, in all for the sake of loudness. Right. And there's definitely a metaphor in there. (laughs) There is, there absolutely is. But that's,
1: that's a marvelous trip you just took us through And, 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 and just that just in the idea of music i just for for compression the physics of it it's <laughs> as usual it's fascinating and it's much bigger than the things we think we're talking about when we just slow down and 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 look at it and, and you're talking about music it makes me think about well when you said the live band what would you rather and most people would rather listen to the live band I would uh, suggest that part of that is also because you want the experience of other people experiencing the band. You want to be part of that, that, uh, geist. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And, and you want to, to see, you want to hear the mistakes in a, in a sense of you want to watch people's faces as they're playing. You, you want to look at them smiling at each other as if there's an inside joke about a, a riff that they're doing. And and all of that is, is not translatable <laughs> in into... A, a CD or an MP3 or a, anything like that. I mean, it, it's you certainly have the power of the music, and you as what you just described with the uh, the compression, the, the things going on there. But you still don't have that essence, and that's really what happens in literature too.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, part of one of the definitions for translation is is uh, to to give people a sense of things. Well, so that sounds like we know what we're talking about, right? But a, but a sense <laughs> sounds like. A skinch. We'll try translating that word. A sense sounds like a an an essence of of it, which just means it's not the real thing. Right? And, <laughs> and and we read so much of literature. I've, I and I'm not standing on. I have no moral high ground here. I'm working in my, my the latter quarter of my life here to try to learn more languages, so I can at least put my eyes on them. To be able to read. I'm using Duolingo and other kinds of things to so just every day do a little practice. But what's my goal? My goal is sometime I can with confidence say something that I want to say to someone in writing in another language. I'm not trying to translate an entire work. I probably won't be able to read the Aeneid in Latin by the time I get done, but you know, that would be cool. But but just to get a sense of what it is like to be able to think of a concept through the words of other than the words of which I was initially raised.
0: Right. And I think that that's where some modern arts are failing us, right? Is because, I mean, some people like listening to, um, you know, older music, uh, for those reasons. Um, you know, cause back older recording media, You didn't have the ability to auto-tune somebody's voice or to quantize somebody's drums or to do these things. So those mistakes are present. So, yeah, recorded music never captured what live music captures, right? Because like you were saying, um, you have stage presence, you have audience participation, you have these other things that you can't capture on a recording. But there are some things that you can capture on recording that we're not anymore, you know, And, and I think that that's something with a lot of modern music that people people sense there's a plastic feeling to it where you realize all the mistakes have been edited out and it doesn't sound like something real. Mm-hmm. And the same goes with photography, right? Um, we don't need to look any farther than social media to know that. Um, if you start um, airbrushing or photoshopping or adjusting you know, lighting and things artificially, um, celebrities regularly get mocked for this. They'll post a photo that's meant to look um, like some candid, um, insight into their every regular day of life. And then somebody says, Hey, wait a minute. I can tell that you shrunk your waist because this image behind you is distorted. You know, <laughs> or I can tell you did this thing because, you yeah. know, so, and, and what does that really do, um, for the audience other than create, uh, psychological issues, right? I mean, you're yeah, giving yeah. people body issues with photos, you're giving, um, musicians, um, a fear of failure, you know, yeah. by not allowing them to make mistakes in in performances and things. You're, it's not a healthy thing to
1: do. No, it's not a healthy thing at all because it's that that's predicated on um, two things. Uh, you're making me think really hard this morning, which is good for me. Uh, <laughs> it's predicated on two things. One one is uh, uh, purpose of the communication, which is at base always something we have to think about, um, and also. The notion of perfection of communication, and there's no such thing as that, and yet we we aim for that. So, so if a celebrity, if, if uh, I mean, given the pressures of the performance industry, most people, even if they're not celebrities, uh, but who are performers, have to do their headshots, and the headshots need to put them in their best light, as far as they they think of themselves in their best light, to highlight the. Uh, this whole cluster of things about them—if um, they're tr- if they're trying to mislead somebody and then leading other people down the path of being worried about body issues—well, yeah, that's, that's an ethical problem. But if they're if but you, you have, well, let's go to something that we. Have. How about a weather map? You can have a weather map. You can see where a storm is going to happen. I know you know where I'm going, but I'm not going to go completely. <laughs> All right, and you don't like where that storm is because it's not where you want it to be in order to accomplish a purpose that you want, and so you so you take a marker and you draw a a bigger line, or I say, oh, the storm is here; it just didn't show that. Totally unethical, and uh, because it's not rendering what the instruments show. If you're doing technical communication, technical communication says, "Here is our best information." If it doesn't, if you don't like get too bad for you. This is our best information. And it's going to change from minute to minute, no doubt. Uh, but that's not art. And art would say, oh, of course Photoshop is an artistic tool I mean, uh, in which one can take an image one has drawn one can experiment with that in ways that one couldn't in in centuries past to see what kind of light effects you can get, to see what kind of um, elements that you can draw out. And so that's a creative process, which is an interpretive process, which is a phenomenological process, which is talking about the original object, whatever that is, and how you are rendering it.
0: Yeah, and you know, I think that there's probably a fine line, um, but I think that there probably is a distinction between using some of these things as creative tools and using them to um, mislead an audience. Oh yeah. and, you know yeah. whether it's music or photography or whatever it is. Um, you know, there's lots of effect. I use. I'm a big fan of using effects in music um, that you wouldn't hear in everyday life, right? Using a studio effect to create a, a strange sound. Um, mm-hmm. But that's. Mm-hmm that's a creative choice. I'm not trying to pass it off as, oh, well, this is, you know, this is something. And same thing with, uh, you know, photography, right? You know, if you do a, uh, you know, you, you you tint some some photo with a, a, you know, or you do like a negative color scheme or something, that's a creative yeah. choice. Nobody's going to think, oh, well, this is how it actually looked when they took the the picture, you know, or something. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that, you know, even with creative writing, it can sort of be like that, right? You're, you know, I think that it's this—it's that same thing. It's that plastic feeling, right? We know when we see a photo, we know when we hear a song. I think we know when we read when we read a, a piece of art too. I think that a good writer is kind of like an actor, right? You're trying—you're developing these characters in your mind, and you're trying to create a dialogue and a storyline that honors those characters and is true to those characters. Um, yeah. But if you are only trying to to portray an ideal character or a um, an archetypical character, then you really end up with, a, you know, kind of a fake book, a sort of <laughs> a, a, a cheesy romance novel or something. Right. Because yeah, you have these true. characters that don't make mistakes or don't don't do something that somebody in real life would. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's so go ahead yeah yeah that that covers i mean that covers the artistic side of it did you have anything you want you had want dad in there um no just to try to pull it together for people who are
1: anybody who's still listening to us talking about this <laughs> uh, is is that we have to i think that base no matter whether we're talking about art or uh, any kind of art whether it's written uh, visual music uh, or back down to the uh, ground level of of translation of of manuals one needs to keep the multiple definitions of translating in mind so i mean you can go because you can go to websites you can see a three-step or four-step process that Try to guarantee you that you'll get the exact meaning out of something, and those are totally misleading. <laughs> I would pull them down if I could, uh, because in translating you're expressing the sense of something in another language. You are you are trying to convert something uh, with with a degree of accuracy, but also with a degree of 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 truth to uh, this, uh, the sense, again, of what that other thing was trying, what that person or group of people were trying to say. You're essentially moving something from one condition to another condition uh, and, and trying to make it still
0: intelligible. Right. right. Yeah, so, you know, as... As I talked about at the beginning of the episode, we'll dip in and out of the technical versus the the bit, the more abstract, which is what we we typically do. So we're coming out of the abstract with the arts. We're, we'll come back into the the literal a little bit more. We talked about metaphrase and paraphrase. Um, are these just different words for like fidelity and transparency, or are those kind of um, unique concepts when we're talking about translating?
1: Uh,
0: m- metaphrase is. Uh...
1: I won't say it's it's unique, but it's newer as, as a term. Uh, so, as I say, one used to say uh, to, to summarize, but even to summarize is putting things into one's own words. Uh, Metaphrase is really literally a word-for-word word translation, so it's something an algorithm could probably do. Um, if it were sophisticated enough, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be intelligible in the sense of smooth going down.
0: (laughs) Right. Yeah. There's a, uh, there's a, a trend on the internet of people, um, putting a a word into Google Translate, translating it into a language, then back translating it into English and seeing what you get. And it's always, it's never something that really portrays the spirit of the first um, thing. Um, So fidelity and transparency. I'm okay with those, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's okay. So those kind of, fidelity is sort of talking about the the spirit of the idea that you're trying to translate and transparency is talking about um, the actual linguistics of translating from one language to another mm-hmm. um, so let's talk about formative stuff a little bit why why do you think translations necessary if we look back into history let's extrapolate it back right yeah. at some point okay. there was a very limited number of human beings correct <laughs> and it's probably safe to assume these human beings spoke the same language or, or had the same method of communication. Um, I, I, I'm going to challenge that a little bit. It, it okay. may be safe to it,
1: if you're talking about one cluster, one tribal group, one nomadic uh, set, uh, as language develop, let's assume we're not talking about Neanderthal development, and everything because you know because evolution POs people sometimes, but it's just it's there. but we're, but we're talking about if we have if we have a language that a group has developed, Would they all be able to understand each other? Um, Well, do you understand everyone in Perry? (laughs) Do I understand everyone in Warsaw? Do I understand everybody in one of my classes when I it would have classes? Well, do I? What do I mean by understand? Do I understand the do I recognize the words that they're using? Yes. Have they told me what they're thinking? Not all the time, even though I think they have. And I'm probably I'm the,
0: the same way. Uh, and, so- right, and that's, so this is where translation gets really interesting, right? I mean, when we're talking about it, you and I are speaking um, English. We're speaking the same language. Mm-hmm. Um, we both have a pretty, pretty decent grasp on English. Um, you know, you more than me. And, but if we're, but if we're, even though we're talking the same language, um, and even some cases, if we're using the same words, I'm translating my cognitive thoughts into language. So regardless of the definition of a word, the meaning that I'm giving a word may be different from the meaning that you're giving a word. Absolutely. Yes. So there's a, now to go to
1: fidelity, you, you, you are being faithful, you know, because that's the root for the fidelity is going back to faith, the, the Latin word. So if you're being faithful to the concept, um, you're trying to express it as clearly as you can. And that's part of what's good conversation. <laughs> As we know, it's about, it's constantly wrestling, revising, rethinking, trying to reset something. But how many times do people say using your what you're just saying? So you're putting an idea out there. And if you say, do you know what I mean? That's kind of like asking somebody... Um, how's it going and often people do that as social grease but they don't mean it we've talked about that before right Uh, do you know what i mean more people should say no (laughs) yeah
0: yeah yeah we had a funny thing happen uh and i were walking through the store the other day and um we had just walked in and there was a guy at the customer service counter and um the lady at the customer service counter said hi how are you today and the guy said terrible and I accidentally burst out laughing because I, I was not, I, you're not used to hearing that answer, right? <laughs> no, so you're some, not. That's right. Somebody says, how are you doing? You say, oh, good. You know, or, you know, it, cause like you said, it's not, it's a question. It's those words have a meaning when they're put in the order that they're put in yes. but the, the meaning that we as a society, we as a culture give those words is not. What is actually linguistically represented there? That's correct. And the intention. The intention is not
1: is not to ask you how you are. It's just to say
0: hi. <laughs> right, and that's not that's not unique to the English language even. That's unique just to our sort of demographic region even. Um, There's a meme floating around recently about how um, in, in New York, um, what, what was the, I think it was how you doing. Yeah. Um, how are you doing? And all the different things that that could mean. You know, you you could say that. Rape, if you're trying to get into a fight with somebody, you could say it. If you're concerned about somebody, you could, like all these different meanings for you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so really, we can see by looking at these examples why translation is necessary. Right? Even if there was a very limited number of people, even if all those people were speaking the same language, um, essentially they aren't. Right. So we may be speaking the same language, but the thoughts that are being represented are different for each person. Yeah. yeah. So I'm gonna ask our other formative question. How do you think translation originated? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm gonna I'm
1: gonna I'm gonna give a suggestion that I, I, I don't think is the, the only it's it's not there's not an exclusive answer to this. There's not a unilateral answer to this. Okay. A translation emerged, I am sure, at least in part, because of the desire to share one's culture. And then we can get into all the subsets of, of things that we mean by culture. Um, when, re- when, re- when any particular religion uh, uh, asserts that it is, it is the one religion that needs to overtake other religions, then concepts need to be translated to try to help assert that into other cultures. Um, If you have a really fine story, you want other people to hear that story, listen to this story. But you've got to be able to say it in a way that other people can can have it. So there's a necessity for translation. Um, Basic things like, uh, let's see, you've got to have the right kind of, you've got to be able to understand uh, somebody who lives 10 miles from you or uh, 50 miles from you, but if all of you are going to go into Babel, you better be able to understand what the terms are for the. <laughs> go left.
0: <Yeah. laughs> so, do you think that? So, do you think the translation in that regard was um, a slow developing thing, or a, or sort of a jarring thing? So, let me give you two examples, okay. right? Yeah, yeah. Um, like you said, let's say we have a, a little community that you know, speaks the same. They start spreading out, right? They start growing. Mm -hmm. As they grow, somebody on this end of the community, you know, starts to develop different language or different pronunciation than somebody at this end. Um, Eventually, as the community continues to grow, people on those opposite ends are speaking almost different languages. And um, the, the people kind of in between are, there's sort of an interpretation happening, right? You have, you know, so it's kind of like going from, um you know boston to uh, you know alabama or something you know you're yes. trying to say okay well you <laughs> you call this thing a different word from what i call it but we both mean this thing or you're speaking with this accent and you're you know you're holding your a's this way and, and i don't do that so but i, I you know i'm understanding it so yes. slowly even though the languages are diverging um the meaning is sort of kept intact mm. or do you think that Um, early humans are pretty tribal. So you have these small family groups that are sort of roaming around, hunting and gathering. Um, (laughs) Then one of these groups happens to find uh, let's say a child that got separated from another group. And so they adopt this child and mm-hmm. that speaks a different language. And then over time they end up learning the language and then they run into this other group and they can kind of communicate with them or, you know, what do you think? Do you think it's a, it was a jarring thing or do you think it's something that happens slow? I think both. Uh, and I, and I'm not trying to
1: wimp out by saying that I, I, on a, on a cultural level, it's a slow process, but sometimes you get a jarring, <clears throat> you get a jarring thing. Uh, somebody finds a book and they translate that book, <clears throat> and they find that it was actually the Book of Judas. This this has happened over in the it, it, this has happened across the past um, decades or decade and a half ish. I, I can't pin it down, but I read the Book of Judas as it was presented uh, in its first well go through uh, from scholars. Fascinating stuff. That can be jarring. That can be jarring for uh, an entire group that thinks that it's sorted out what's real and what's not. Uh, Books that are apocryphal, books that are (laughs) uh, accepted and so on. Uh, So there can be that jarring sense, but it takes a lot of time for people to integrate that. It can be jarring for uh, immigrants uh, who are trying to learn the language of the place that they're going at the same time that they don't want to lose the language of the place that they've been. And some cultures, such as our own up until recently, and and even still sometimes does, will assert, uh, we have one language that defines who we are. Uh, You have to let that other go. I mean, our history is replete with doing horrific things from from aboriginal uh native american societies to anyone else coming in to try to punish by removing language making lang- the language a, a a terrible thing and an, an anathema a, a point of of derision where uh, so, so but that's how that's also a long cultural process uh that then starts to get reversed, and and these are waves that. Uh, uh, but from from the viewpoint of the, your example of a child being found and trying to uh, figure out uh, a communication with them, that's still a long process. It's not going to happen in one day or two days or three days. That's going to, but it's not as long as a cultural process.
0: Okay, so yeah, so let's look at um the Bible is a story about the tower of Babel, right? Yep. So what the story says is that all of mankind spoke one language. Um, they attempted to build a tower to reach the heavens. God didn't like that. He tore down the tower and then he scattered them all over and had them speak in different languages. Right. Do other religions have stories that, that are similar with that, like a flood story, a creation story, those sort of transcend religious boundaries. mm mm-hmm do other religions have stories about um, language like that?
1: That's a really good question. A uh, quick question. I, off the top of my head, well, I think not as explicitly, but I may be completely wrong of, of about that, Joel. So to me, the whenever one culture is encountering another culture in in a story Um, there are often insults being traded or assumptions being made because of the things that the characters would say Um, I've I've got a site I'm going to look up on and and see um, uh, that uh, presents other things Um, okay so this this site is a uh, it's a, it's it's not heavily academic but it is it has some good basis. Um Mormonism has a version apparently uh, according to the book of uh, ether and the Book of Mormon God changed the language as the people to thwart their plans for getting to heaven so there's a variation um, the Sumerians well yes okay uh, they they had a ziggurat um, and uh, the, the, you know a large tower, uh, the house of foundation of heaven on earth. Uh, it was dedicated to Marduk, uh, the 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 patron uh, god of Babylon. Um, and there's a story about how uh, uh, Marduk was PO'd <laughs> because of of this effort. Um, um, there's a story in Islam, apparently, uh, uh a Pharaoh who orders a minister to build a tower that reaches the heavens. And again, we get that, that, so, uh, I'll backtrack and say, okay, yeah. So other, ver- other related, uh, things related to the great Jewish, um, Islamic Christian melange that comes out of one, essentially family, um, of stories it's there i don't i i don't know about other cultures
0: so so what's the story trying to tell us so humankind is working to try to um become greater than god so god doesn't like that so he he divides their languages what what do you think what's the message there well, first, I think the message is not that they're trying to become greater than
1: God. They're trying. To, uh, they're trying to reach God. Um, you know, there's, 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 depending on the translation, I don't know if it's in the NIV, but um, in the King James, uh, essentially, God sees this tower and says, uh, "They are becoming as powerful as us," and so that has to be demolished um it's a saying you know saying work together don't work together too well if you work together to me you know but i'm i'm a rogue joel you know this to to me as a language person as a story person as a scholar as just somebody alive that story says uh yeah there's a jealous god who does not want people to get to be too powerful because if, if they are then they might be a challenge you know, the, the, from the science fiction viewpoint, it's it's of course it's a story intended to be about pride, but gee, you create a group of people, but you really don't want those people to be united. You don't want everyone united. You want one group of people to be united, but that so that they can they can crash and bash other. people. Groups of people. I, I don't see any way to read that story as a story of uh, development of, of peace and and better humanity.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting uh, it's a, it's an interesting story in there that that often gets overlooked. Um, yeah. So let's look into the speculative a little bit, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, what what do you think is the most important when we're translating something? Do you think it's Coming back to that, metaphrase, paraphrase, fidelity, transparency. Do you think it's preserving the original meaning or providing a translation? And let me give me a little bit of context. Right, we yeah, had, um, I think, it was Francis Bacon was saying that if he had it his way, he would just get rid of all translators. Right, he just <laughs> yeah. there would be no translations because mm-hmm. the thought to him of taking something that was written in one language and moving it into another. Um, was just grossly inadequate and un, you know, un, unpalatable, right? Right. Um, and then we can see what happens when we do translate something and give it to another people, um, and what people do with that with that translation. Um, so, what do you, what do you think? What if if you're translate? Let's say, you know, I, you and I don't have that ability, right? we we're not so comfortable in multiple languages that we can translate things back and forth. Let's Hmm. say we did them, right? What to you would be the most important part of that? Would it be preserving what the original thing was saying, or would it be providing the spirit of it to a new group? I
1: Well, I sort of fall into Heidegger's, uh, Martin Heidegger's camp on this. Uh, Heidegger uh, said a number of things about translation. Was talking about the the difficulty of thinking that we understood what the Greeks were thinking because of the translation process, and and uh, and Heidegger asserted, as you know, more or less this that that, that any uh, text that you do as translation is just read. Composing that text through your thought—it's not a—it's—it's it's not a thinker's word thought, but it's the translator's thought that it's virtually impossible <coughs> to get to the original thought uh, because of the nature of language itself, and so it, it's an important process. Uh, but all I, but I think it's, it's one would be misled to think that you're getting the original. Uh, without any any of the the thought, no matter how careful a translator tries to be, translators still thinking her is their own way. Um, that, that, this is why the idea of a, a complete neutrality of language. Uh, I've said this to students for so many <laughs> decades, but I we affect this. We try to pretend that you can be value neutral in language, but it, it's almost impossible to achieve. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think it's important to, to, to get the essence of what, I think translators can get the essence of what someone else is saying. But just as a, a quick example, I, the, during the pandemic, I went back to uh, reread some, some classics, and I was enjoying two different translations of The Odyssey uh both academically very sound both written within a couple of years of each other very recently and 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 both similar but the way that phrases are turned the the with the placing of the punctuation the the uh, the the choice of words the diction uh makes it a different experience a fresh experience. Just as if you were playing a... a, a choose your, your piece. You're playing any any piece of, of recognizable music other than your own. Um, you're going to bring your interpretation when you touch those strings, no matter how you, you... You're not going to do a song the same way that the Beatles did a song, because you can't. They couldn't do a song that you're doing, because, you because style is inevitable if you're really thinking hard about the process.
0: Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, looking at our different mediums, there's there's a lot of different ways to do this. I think the easiest one to do with is the Bible, right? There's plenty of sites where you can go, you can find a verse, and then you can put it into like 26 or 7 different translations just a drop yes. down menu, hit it, hit it, hit it. And you can see that what the meaning of those words means in different translations is, suddenly changes for you depending on the words that are used Mm -hmm. in music. Um, I think that the most applicable, um, sort of, um, equivalency is, um, you know, I write the music, I play the music. Um, so that's sort of like the creation of the work. Um, in the past I've experimented with having other people produce the music, mix it, and master Mm -hmm. it. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and what I found is that I, I don't like it, even though, the people that I've had do it are better at mixing and mastering than me. I just find that something gets lost, right? I, the way that they emphasize thing, what they emphasize, how they do things, um, is not the way that I intended it when I wrote the song. So yeah. it's, you know, even if they did something better, um, even if the audience may like their version better, what I found is that no, when I wrote the song, this is how I pictured it sounding. So I'm going to use, Um, my inferior mixing skills to create something that I think honestly portrays what it is I wanted to convey, you know? Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Um, So it's really, you know, this, this idea of translating, Um, like you said, I think that, and like I said, in the intro, um, there's that value neutral mindset. We don't give any thought to this stuff. We just assume that, you know, okay, well, if somebody's translating something, they're, they're giving me a prop, you know a, a good enough idea that i know what's being talked about um, but we really might not understand what's what's going on as well as we think we do and so yeah you know, you know looking at it speculatively and you know coming back into the abstract a little bit towards the end of the episode um, you know i briefly alluded to the fact that cognitively we're translating right i'm taking thoughts and feelings and electrical impulses in my brain, and then I'm trying to force them through language in order to give somebody an idea of what's going on up in my head, right? (laughs) And how how accurate is that, you know? it's it's, There's plenty of times where you and I are sitting here on the podcast and there's four or five seconds where we're just going, uh... Yeah, exactly, (laughs) because I, you know... (laughs) I know I know what I'm thinking but I am having a hard time finding the language to try to, to try to get that thought out there.
1: That's that's what uh, that's probably the, the most common expression that I've heard throughout my teaching which is a, a student authentically saying I I know what I want to say, but I don't know how to say it. You know, you know. And when a student said that immediately, that takes me back to Heidegger again, because it, Heidegger says uh, that that, uh, that people act as though man acts as though he's the shaper and the master of language, but in fact, language remains the master of man. And if we take that and go back to the the ba- uh, Tower of Babel, okay, uh, or Babel, but uh, uh, Maybe the lesson is that, that if, if in the beginning was the word and God is the word, then language is the master and humans aren't going to be able to master it and they needed a great big lesson in style. Crush, down goes the tower. And yeah, we, we, we don't we don't know language as well as language knows itself. Language is always ahead of us. Language is its own organic organic uh, Albeit in many ways uh, connected to us by tendrils we can't understand,
0: language is its own thing. Yeah, exactly. And I I didn't re- realize that as well as I did until um, one of the classes that I took with you a long time ago, you gave me um, Rollo May's The Courage to Create. Ah, uh, yes, yes, yes. And wonderful. it's just this, just this little book. Um, and then I started reading it, and all of a sudden I realized, man, I don't understand language at all. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Because you're right. I think that we've talked about in the past um, in the consciousness episode, these things that the closer you get to something that is inextricably intertwined to the experience of being human, the less you are able to critically examine it, the less you are able to actually, you know, decipher and, and, you know, deconstruct what it is that that makes that thing up you know and, mm-hmm. and language is one of those things yeah. and you know yeah. language itself is one of those things trying to translate from one language to another adds an entirely different um an entirely different layer to that it, it does because there's a and i'm trying to help
1: us close this with you but a, a, a pulling something from a discussion we had before we started with the episode <laughs> um and it goes to an aphorism that people have said for a long, long, long time. Uh, if you want to teach something, you better know how to do it and have the hard practice of doing it and failing at it and doing well at it and failing at it again. And that's what using language is. Nobody Nobody, no writer, no 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 manual writer, ever ought to be in the position of thinking. Well, I've got this mastered now, don't I? Because that's great when language turns right around and gives you a big bite.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that was perfect. Um, you no, know, I I that really went where I wanted it to. Um, you know, I knew that talking about translation was going to be was going to be a little bit a little bit difficult. And um, we hit all the points that I wanted to. So um, thanks for joining me. Um, Until next time, keep pondering.